This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. The Securities and Exchange Commission is undertaking its duties with a profound sense of the responsibility which has been imposed upon it in response to a widespread demand on the part of the American people. When the President communicated this demand to Congress, he said, it is my belief that exchanges for dealing in securities are necessary and of definite value to our commercial life. Nevertheless, it should be our national policy to restrict as far as possible the use of these exchanges for purely speculative purposes. With these views of the President, every member of the Commission is in hearty accord. Of course, in regulating the stock exchanges, adequate time must be taken to work out many technical details. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities regulatory and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Always good to be with you, Chris. On most episodes of Insecurities, you'll hear me or Kurt give a brief introduction up top to set the tone for the episode. Today, we let off with someone with a bit more gravitas, uh, a clip of the SEC Chairman Joseph Patrick Kennedy, courtesy of the University of South Carolina's Moving Image Research Collections. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We thought it would be fun to start the episode with remarks from the SEC's first ever chairman. Remarks made in July 1934, shortly after Kennedy assumed the role of chairman. Because today we're going to talk about the history of the SEC, how its role and mission have evolved, and how things have changed in the enforcement division over time. We're also going to welcome special guest Jim Barrett to tell us about the SEC Historical Society, whose mission is to share, preserve, and advance knowledge of the history of financial regulation. As listeners of this podcast know, we often talk a lot about the SEC, the laws that fall within its regulatory mandate and the rules it promulgates, as well as enforcement actions that it brings. But we've never really taken a step back to talk about just what the SEC is. The SEC's origin story, if you will, for my comic book fan friends. How and why it was created, what are the acts, legislation, or rules for which it has regulatory authority, and how has it changed over the last 85 years or so? Those are some of the threads we want to pull together today. So let's get started with our little crash course on the history of the SEC. A quick note to start things off, it's likely that we are going to cover some ground today that we've talked about before, and that may be particular acts or cases or trends that we see either at the SEC or more specifically at the Division of Enforcement. But we want to take a step back and just sort of set the scene. Since its inception, the SEC has helped bring stability to an ever-changing market by protecting consumers, maintaining fair markets, and ensuring companies are transparent with their financial transactions. Today, we know the SEC as an independent federal regulatory agency that is responsible, first and foremost, for protecting investors. The SEC is also tasked with facilitating capital formation for companies that wish to issue and sell stocks, bonds, or other securities, with overseeing the stock markets or exchanges, with implementing or proposing new rules, 
and with enforcing the federal securities laws. The laws and rules that the SEC is responsible for enforcing encompass a few pretty straightforward concepts. First, all investors, whether large institutions or private individuals, retail investors, should have access to certain basic facts about an investment both before they buy it and for as long as they hold it. Second, companies that offer and sell to the public, stocks or other securities, must be transparent about their business, the securities they are selling, and any risks involved in investing in those securities. Third, those who sell and trade securities, brokers, dealers, and exchanges, for example, must treat investors fairly and honestly. All right. So that is super high level kind of what is the SEC. But with those basic concepts in mind, let's get to the SEC's origin story. Prior to the SEC's creation, oversight of trading in stocks, bonds, and other securities was virtually non-existent, which scholars say led to widespread fraud, insider trading, and other abuses. After World War I, during the so-called Roaring Twenties, the U.S. experienced an unprecedented economic boom. Tempted by popular rags-to-riches stories, ordinary people started investing in the stock market, with little appreciation or understanding of the risks involved. It's estimated that during the 1920s, approximately 20 million new investors entered the market, and during the same period, $50 billion in new securities were offered. That would be a lot in today's money half of which became worthless. And all of this happened with virtually no regulatory oversight. This environment, marked by rampant speculation and fraudulent schemes, was ripe for reform. Nevertheless, before the great crash of 1929, there was little support for federal regulation of the securities markets. In fact, proposals that the federal government require financial disclosure or prevent the fraudulent sale of stock were never seriously pursued. And that all changed, as you referenced, Kurt, on Black Tuesday, October 29, 1929, the day the stock market crashed. Investors and banks lost billions of dollars on Black Tuesday. The stock market crash caused nearly 5,000 banks to close and led to bankruptcies, rampant unemployment, wage cuts, and homelessness, which triggered the Great Depression. Understandably, public confidence in the markets plummeted. Public sentiment, coupled with political willpower, to take on securities regulation began to take root. For the economy to recover, the public's faith in the capital markets needed to be restored. In 1932, the Senate Banking Committee held hearings to help identify the causes of the Great Depression and develop a plan to prevent a future stock market crash. These congressional hearings, known as the Pecora Hearings, named for Ferdinand Pecora, the chief counsel of the Senate Banking Committee, determined that numerous financial institutions had misled investors, acting irresponsibly and participating in widespread insider trading. Based on the evidence and findings of these hearings, Congress, during the peak year of the Depression, passed the Securities Act of 1933. The so-called 33 Act is sometimes referred to as the Truth in Securities Act. It has two basic objectives. First, it requires that investors receive financial and other significant information concerning securities being offered for public sale, and it prohibits deceit, misrepresentations, and other fraud in the offering or sale of securities. One year later, Congress passed the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, or the 34 Act, which created the SEC and vested it with broad authority over all aspects of the securities industry. At a basic level, this included the power to enforce the newly passed securities laws, but also included a mission to promote stability in the markets and protect investors, and to that end, 
the authority to register, regulate, and oversee brokerage firms, transfer agents, clearing agencies, self-regulatory organizations, or SROs, and the nation's various stock exchanges, the authority to enforce the securities laws by disciplining regulated entities and persons that engage in prohibited conduct, and the authority to require periodic reporting of information by companies with publicly traded securities. To serve as the first chairman of the SEC, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed Joseph P. Kennedy, father of President John F. Kennedy and Senators Robert and Ted Kennedy. The Securities Act of 1933 and Exchange Act of 1934 count among President Roosevelt's New Deal programs to help fight the devastating economic effects of the Great Depression and to prevent any future market calamities. Together, the acts were designed to restore investor confidence in the U.S. capital markets by providing investors and the markets with more reliable information and clear rules of honest dealing. So that brings us through the creation of the SEC and offers a helpful look at the acts that created the SEC and the regulations it enforces, or the regulations it was authorized to enforce in the early days. But as we all know, that's not the end of the story. Over the years, there have been several other noteworthy pieces of legislation that shaped the SEC's regulatory authority and mandate. I want to take a couple minutes just to run through a few of the more prominent pieces of legislation, Uh, but I would just note this is not a comprehensive list. I'm not going to cite every amendment. These are just sort of the, the ones that I think have fundamentally changed the shape of the SEC. So first is the Glass-Steagall Act. Uh, This one we've probably all heard of. It's been a little bit of a political lightning rod over the last four or five years. In addition to the 33 and 34 Act, the PCORA hearings also led to the passing of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1933, which separated investment banking from commercial banking. The Glass-Steagall Act also created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, to oversee banks, protect consumers' bank deposits, and manage consumer complaints. Next on the list is the Investment Company Act of 1940. This act regulates the organization of companies, including mutual funds, that engage primarily in investing, reinvesting, and trading in securities, and whose own securities are offered to the investing public. The regulation is designed to minimize conflicts of interest and requires disclosure of information about the fund and its investment objectives, structure, and operations. Next up, the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Simply put, this law regulates investment advisors. With certain exceptions, this act requires that firms or sole practitioners compensated for advising others about securities investments must register with the SEC and conform to regulations designed to protect investors. Since the act was amended in 1996, generally, only advisors who have at least $100 million of assets under management or who advise a registered investment company must register with the commission. The Securities Act's Amendments of 1975, so we've skipped forward a few decades here, The Securities Act's amendments imposed an obligation on the SEC to consider the impacts that any new regulation would have on competition. The law also empowered the SEC to establish a national market system and a system for nationwide clearing and settlement of securities transactions, enabling the SEC to enact Regulation NMS. The act also created the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, or MSRB, which is a self-regulatory organization that regulates broker-dealers and banks in the U.S. municipal securities market. Skipping forward another few decades, 
the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, or SOX, which My personal favorite. I, I, I know, we're going to get there. <laughs> SOX has been characterized as the most far-reaching reforms of American business practices since the time of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The act mandated a number of reforms to enhance corporate responsibility, enhance financial disclosures, and combat corporate and accounting fraud. It also created the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB, which we talked about on our last episode. All right, just two more on my list, Chris. Next is the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010. Dodd-Frank set out to reshape the U.S. regulatory system in a number of areas, including but not limited to consumer protection, trading restrictions, credit ratings, regulation of financial products, corporate governance and disclosure, and transparency. And finally, the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, the JOBS Act, which requires the SEC to write rules and issue studies on capital formation, disclosure, and registration requirements. So that's both a lot and not very much (laughs) with respect to all of those acts. But, you know, the the point is that the U.S. securities regulatory framework has evolved over time and the SEC has had to change with it. But sort of with that construct in mind, I think the basic framework within which we should understand the SEC is, is that it is responsible for the following. The commission must interpret and enforce federal securities laws. The commission issues new rules and amends existing rules. The SEC oversees the inspection of securities firms, brokers, investment advisors, and rating agencies. The SEC oversees private regulatory organizations in the securities accounting and auditing field. These are the SROs we've talked about. And the SEC coordinates U.S. securities regulation with federal, state, and foreign authorities. And so that, from a very high level, is the origin story of the SEC and a little bit about what it does. Well, Kurt, with that very, very brief discussion of the history of the Securities and Exchange Commission, let's take a few minutes to chat with our guest, Jim Barrett, who's going to tell us a bit about the SEC Historical Society. Yeah, and let me just set the scene here. A financial journalist recently described the SEC Historical Society as follows. It has long been a precious resource for financial historians, economic and market policy analysts, and context-minded journalists. But the recent pandemic has underscored the vital importance of having an online option for research when traditional archives and libraries are no longer safely or widely available. With the near future certain to be marked by more limited travel, it is more important than ever that this accessible mode of research be applauded and supported. We're very fortunate to have Jim with us today to tell us about the SEC Historical Society. Jim is a director at Alex Partners and an expert forensic accountant with over 30 years of experience as an independent auditor, internal audit director, chief compliance officer, and a former SEC enforcement accountant. And in full disclosure, Jim and I used to work together at the same consulting firm, so great to reconnect with him here. Aside from his work as a forensic accountant, Jim has been active with the SEC Historical Society since 2002. He served as president of the Historical Society's Board of Trustees in 2009, and currently serves as the Vice President of the Board's Development Committee. Welcome to Insecurities, Jim. Great to be with you, Kurt and Chris. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this society. 
Yeah, we're really glad to have you, Jim. We actually borrowed a little bit of information from the SEC Historical Society's website. So we, we opened up this episode with a clip of Chairman Joseph Kennedy. The clip is housed at the University of South Carolina's Moving Image Research Collections, but it's among the things that you can find on the Historical Society's website. I don't want to jump the gun, but there's actually a ton of other really interesting stuff on the, on the website, and I would encourage our listeners to check it out. But Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about the SEC Historical Society itself? What's the mission? Sure. And I'm glad that you uh, visited the Virtue Museum and were able to experience some of the, the things that we have to offer. The SEC Historical Society's mission is to preserve, share, and advance knowledge of the history of financial regulation and our securities markets, and especially the SEC. And this is primarily done through our website, which houses our virtual museum and archives, what you tapped into earlier. And we just recently celebrated the 20th year of the founding of the society, which coincided with the 85th anniversary of the SEC. And we had a, uh, a live celebration. And in that, we, we honored our founders, uh, who were David Reuter, Paul Gonson, and Harvey Pitt, for their roles in establishing the Historical Society as a nonprofit organization. And, and just as a, a plug to get people onto the website, there is a short video featuring the three founders and explaining the impetus for establishing the society on our homepage. Yeah, so I was actually fortunate enough to to attend that event, Jim. It really was a, a great event, a good opportunity to learn about the society and just to to network with people who practice in the space. Um, so I, I love it when the Historical Society does events, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Let me back up and just ask a, a more basic question. Is the SEC Historical Society affiliated with the SEC itself? Or is it affiliated with the Association of Securities and Exchange Commission alumni, usually known as ASICA, which also organizes a dinner each year after PLI's annual SEC Speaks Conference? Any affiliation with those entities? Kurt, I'm glad you asked that question because there, from time to time, there's some confusion as to how we're related or re- interact with the SEC or ASICA. And the, the short answer is we are, are not part of the SEC. We're not funded by the SEC. We're a, a nonprofit organization. We don't receive government funding. And so we're not legally affiliated with the SEC or any government entity. And in, in terms of uh, ASICA, we we operate kind of independently. Our, our primary focus is the virtual museum and preserving the history. And uh, while I enjoy going to the ASICA dinners, we, we work with them, but we're not affiliated with them. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of great SEC related organizations that put on good parties, Jim. So you know, for practitioners like Kurt and I, we appreciate all of the different flavors, uh, the types of information we can get from from the group. So great to draw those dividing lines and really hear how the historical society is unique. So talk to us a little bit about what kinds of information and materials might be available on the website, and 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 to wit, are there any plans, uh, you know, especially during this pandemic, uh, of new information related to exhibits or or some of the virtual galleries you guys have on the site? Yeah, thanks, Chris. As you mentioned in the comments by the the financial reporter, it is all virtual. I, one thing I think that's interesting and isn't necessarily well known is that initially the society, the virtual museum, was intended to be a brick and mortar physical structure, and 
with fortunately with the coincidence of uh, website technology in the late 90s and looking at the the cost and what could be more effectively more economically used to uh, accomplish this collection we developed the virtual museum and archive and that's where all this information is is housed so let me let me tell you a little bit about what's in there we really focus on original type papers. We're not intending to reproduce materials that are easily found on, on other websites or you know, information providers, but really to collect and house unique and hard to find materials. And that, that takes the form of papers, historical papers that maybe SEC staff has maintained that we're able to digitize and put in. That includes photos, which are I, I encourage you to go on there. It's very interesting photos, one of which always sticks with me is when the SEC had their headquarters in Philadelphia briefly, and because there was limited space, they were operating in the in the base of a swimming pool. So you'll see desks in the swimming pool, um, <laughs> which was a little known fact. But uh, so there's a, a lot of interesting and sometimes entertaining uh, photos. There's also some radio and film clips, like the one you referenced. Um, and then there's also oral interviews of individuals that have been involved in the development of the SEC or securities regulation. And and what's great about that is it, it captures, many of these people, unfortunately, are no longer with us, but it captures their thoughts as to what was going on real time, what was the origin of some of these uh, decisions that then impacted the the laws as we know them. Another aspect we do is is programs. And currently they're all virtual, obviously, because of the COVID-19 situation. But we have done uh, live events uh, that are then broadcast and become part of the content. And we also do uh, galleries. If you think of almost like an art museum, we have different galleries that are focused on a specific topic. And within that gallery, there'll be certain exhibits. And it's, it's something you can go through and peruse and, and find different aspects of elements of the SEC. And I think you had asked, we've got some upcoming galleries. One I'm, I'm very excited about is the Enforcement Division Gallery, which will be coming out, should be released in September. We've also got a, uh, a gallery coming out on the PCAOB and also one on Reg FD, which is in the works currently. Jim, that's great to hear. And also, you know, a little bit self-fulfilling as we see a lot of the topics we're covering on the Insecurities podcast being reflected with the Historical Society coming up. So I know both Kurt and I are really looking forward to reviewing that information when it goes live. And if we need to have a Zoom, uh, you know, gallery opening reception, I'll be sure to have a a bottle of champagne uh, on ice waiting for that. So we'll see as that comes forward. One other thing we want to touch on, you know, both from from the journalistic perspective as well as the practitioner's perspective, you know, the Historical Society seems like it's got a lot of unique uh, information that's more than just novelty or nostalgia. Uh, you know, what kind of value, Jim, do you and the, the other members of the Historical Society see to practitioners in today's securities regulatory and enforcement space? And are there initiatives that the practitioners could use the Historical Society in the completion of their daily work? Yes, absolutely, Chris. And part of that is reflected in the comments that you shared earlier, but there, we've also gotten feedback from uh, law school professors, uh, students, law firm practitioners like Kurt, who sometimes will be doing research or preparing for some kind of a case, 
And it and there's a benefit to knowing and understanding really what's the origin, what's the history of this, and that may help inform your your arguments. So it is really a, a valuable research and information source for people with a variety of interests. Our typical visitors include um, students, professors, uh, practitioners, authors, reporters, and really anyone who's curious about how the you know securities markets are regulated. So it's kind of a one-stop shop to search and find what you're looking for, and you may find things that you really won't find anywhere else. I know both Kurt and I use the resources of the Historical Society to help fill out our lightning round history of the SEC for this episode, too. So we appreciate that. And, and Jim, I know I've, I've heard from a, you know, a couple of other folks in the industry, and I've got a quote here from a specific law firm partner I wanted to share with the listeners as well. This partner goes on to say, I first learned of the importance of understanding the history of the SEC when I was a junior associate at a law firm working with a former SEC commissioner. The partner asked me to work with him on an important litigation matter involving payment for order flow. As a part of the project, he loaned me his personal copy of the multi-volume SEC 1963 Special Study of Securities Markets. Citing to the study, we prepared a brief with an in-depth explanation to the court of the history and evolution of market structure issues relevant to the case, and we ultimately won the day. The SEC Historical Society's virtual museum and archives, including recording collections of past key SEC officials or documents reflecting the decision-making behind current policies, continue to be important to my practice. So again, uh, you know, a quote directly from those practitioners in the space utilizing the resources at the Historical Society to the benefit of their clients in, in matters going today. Absolutely. I think it's important to realize there's a lot of historical documents and, and information there, but also through some of our programs, we have current SEC staff participating in it. So we had a enforcement directors roundtable where we gathered all the uh, enforcement directors who could comment about their historical perspective, but also kind of give some more real-time feedback as to what's going on today. And so I think that there really is a, a lot of value to to utilizing the, what's in the museum. I, I actually was at that event too, Jim. I, I may be your biggest fan. It was a great panel discussion. Uh, you know, it was it was fun to see some of the former directors of enforcement uh, give the the current co directors a little bit of a hard time, and just see how they how they reacted to some of the policy positions or changing views of the folks that came before them. You know, I look. I think as a practitioner. It definitely is a valuable resource. I know that I often find myself in SEC enforcement matters arguing policy and trying to explain the historical context or, you know, why what a client is doing sort of fits within the expectations of the regulators over time. So it's nice to have a place where you can go to find some of that information. Which I think really is is a good reason for folks to get involved with the Historical Society. So, Jim, why don't you tell us, I mean, how did you get involved? And are there opportunities for folks like me and Chris to get on board too? There's room for everybody to get involved. And in terms of the, my involvement, I think Chris alluded to it before. Shortly after the, the society had been developed, I learned about it, and this was probably early 2000s, and really just kind of volunteered. I I became a donor. You know, we're really a donor-based organization. We get by with um, individuals, law firm, accounting firm, consulting firm uh, donations. And so, you know, I, I really enjoyed the mission. I enjoyed the fact that they were preserving history. So I eventually joined um, 
there's a board of advisors, which is not the board of trustees, which is the equivalent of the board of directors, but there's a board of advisors where people that aren't necessarily ready to serve on a board of trustees can go and become participants. And, and we really look for people that have a passion or an interest in supporting the mission. And so I, I basically came on the board of trustees and I think it was 2006. And in 2009, I was the president of the board and it coincided with the 75th anniversary of the SEC. And again, kind of a historical reference here. At the time, there was discussion about whether the SEC should still continue, should it be rolled into Treasury. And so we were hosting and the celebration, the 75th anniversary of the SEC, but we weren't sure the SEC was necessarily going to be around in its current form after that. So it was quite an honor. It was uh, another big event, and it was it was just a privilege to kind of put all that together. And so I, I did my kind of term there, and then I went away and worked, as, as Chris and I know, in our forensic accounting fields. And then I kind of rekindled my interest again, and in uh, 2018, joined the Board of Advisors. And now, as you mentioned, I'm on the Board of Trustees and the Vice President for Development. Jim, we talked a little bit before about some of the upcoming events. Looking down the barrel of the end of the summer and a lot of opportunity to uh, you know, potentially engage, is, are there any dates or, or items coming up for the Historical Society that Kurt and I should put on our calendar? Yeah, I'd say, as I mentioned, the enforcement gallery, which you should understand these galleries require a fair amount of time and effort to put together. They're, there's a curator that's engaged. They they do a kind of a write-up. They put together the the relevant papers, the photographs, the programs that are relevant that to put in there. So I'd say the uh, enforcement gallery, which is scheduled for September. The PCOB gallery is, is I think, towards December or January. Uh, and the Reg FD one should be sometime later this month. But I would say not just the galleries, but if there's different programs, one-off kind of issues of interest, and we've got various law firms or accounting firms that sponsor those. And so I would, I would recommend you go to the the website and see kind of what's going on. If you get on our distribution, you'll, you'll be able to be notified as to when when things happen. All right. So, uh, Jim, that sort of brings us to what may be the most critical question or two, which is uh, tell us the website and tell us where folks who are interested in ABLE could go to make a donation. Sure. Um, the website is www.sechistorical.org. And if you go in there, that's really the society website, as well as the housing of the virtual museum and archives. We also are on social media. We've got a a LinkedIn presence, Twitter, and Facebook. And I encourage everybody to, you know, whether it's for work or just kind of enjoyment, or just if you have a kind of a historical curiosity about things, to really visit the website, watch the the founder's video, it kind of gives you a nice synopsis of how we got where we are today. Yeah, I would encourage everyone to do the same. It really is a a treasure trove of information, and I would recommend it to all of our listeners. Jim, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. It's been an awesome conversation, and we appreciate you educating us and the listeners about the SEC Historical Society. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, and I always enjoy uh, talking with you guys. 
So far today, we've spent some time talking about the history of the SEC and its enabling of legislation, as well as the SEC Historical Society. To close out the show, we want to spend a little bit of time talking about how the SEC is organized and what its focuses are, and in particular, our favorite division of the SEC, the Division of Enforcement. <laughs> Certainly mine, Chris, but, but let's start at the top. So the commission is comprised of five presidentially appointed commissioners with staggered five-year terms. One of the commissioners is designated by the president as the chairman of the commission, the agency's chief executive. And Jay Clayton, who we've talked about, currently serves in that role. The commission convenes regularly at meetings that are open to the public and the news media, unless the discussion pertains to confidential subjects, such as whether or not to bring an enforcement action. By law, no more than three of the commissioners may belong to the same political party, which ensures nonpartisanship. It's notable that we don't always have a full complement of SEC commissioners. In fact, for several months in 2020, there were only four commissioners, which comprised an independent, two Republicans, and one Democrat. But as of early August, the SEC is back up to its full roster of five commissioners. The agency's functional responsibilities are organized into five specific divisions and 24 office locations, each of which is headquartered in Washington, D.C. The commission's approximately 4,600 staff are located in D.C. and 11 regional offices throughout the country. The Division of Enforcement is, of course, one of those five divisions, and that's where we're going to focus our energy in this segment. But let's talk through a tour of the other divisions and offices. The Division of Corporate Finance, every accountant's favorite division, focuses on the disclosure of important information to the investing public. The Division of Trading and Markets focuses on the day-to-day oversight of the major securities market participants, the exchanges, securities firms, SROs. It also includes FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Uh, As Kurt mentioned before, the MSRB, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, various clearing agencies that help facilitate the settlement of trades, uh, specific transfer agents or parties that maintain records of securities owners, securities information, and credit rating agencies. The Division of Investment Management has the responsibility of investor protection and for promoting capital formation through oversight and regulation of America's $66.8 trillion of investment management. The Division of Economic Risk and Analysis, affectionately known as DIRA, assists the commission in executing its mission to protect investors, maintaining fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitating capital formation by integrating robust economic analyses and rigorous data analytics into the work of the SEC. And finally, that fifth and favorite division for us, the Division of Enforcement, which we'll talk about in a second. I think it's helpful just to orient listeners to just how how broad the spectrum is of the types of offices and issues that the SEC is is concerned about and the number of dedicated teams they have to addressing particular issues. I know we've talked about some of them before and undoubtedly we will on future episodes. Let's turn to the enforcement division, Chris. Let's get to it. The SEC's effectiveness as a regulator depends in large part on its enforcement authority. The enforcement division is the mechanism through which the SEC executes its law enforcement capabilities. By recommending the commencement of investigations of potential securities laws violations, by recommending that the commission bring civil actions in federal court or as administrative proceedings, and by prosecuting those cases on behalf of the commission. Each year, the SEC brings hundreds of civil enforcement actions against individuals and companies for violations or alleged violations 
of the federal securities laws. SEC enforcement actions hit a high watermark of 868 enforcement actions in fiscal year 2016. But as we've discussed on past episodes, Chris, the division has mostly kept that pace up. In fact, in 2019, the SEC brought 862 enforcement actions, so not far off of the record. The basis of the SEC's enforcement authority dates to the 34 Act, in connection with which the SEC designed and implemented Rule 10b-5, which prohibits market manipulation and deception, and has emerged as the rule that the staff leans on most often to root out all manner of securities fraud and illicit investment schemes. Typical infractions include insider trading, accounting fraud, providing false or misleading information about securities and the companies that issue them, and technical violations of various securities laws or rules. While for decades the Division of Enforcement was a relatively quiet outpost, it is indisputably the case that SEC enforcement has become more active over time, buoyed by larger, better-funded examination and enforcement staffs, and regulations that allow the staff to pursue harsher penalties, sometimes in new forums. For example, Congress has changed the federal securities laws over time to allow the SEC to impose a variety of sanctions through administrative proceedings, including cease and desist orders, bars or suspensions from participating in the securities industry, and importantly, civil monetary penalties. Together, these trends have resulted in an explosion in securities enforcement over the last couple of decades, with the number of enforcement actions and the amount of sanctions ordered ticking up sharply since the Enron and WorldCom scandals in the early 2000s. Looking back at the SEC's enforcement division over time, it's easy to identify a period when things changed. Many in the industry talk about enforcement as either before or after Stanley Sporkin became director of the Division of Enforcement in 1974. There are many, many great profiles of this towering attorney, regulator, and judge for the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia, who passed away earlier this year at the age of 88. We won't do Judge Sporkin's legacy justice here in this podcast segment, but the manner in which he utilized his connections and skills as a director of enforcement changed the SEC for good. Apart from being a wildly effective attorney and a voracious consumer of legal materials, Judge Sporkin made a few key changes in SEC policy regarding enforcement that struck a nerve in the standard corporate securities playbook at the time. In 1972, Judge Sporkin's enforcement division leaned into the use of consent decrees, whereby companies or executives would settle with the SEC without a long and somewhat dry trial process. The consent decrees of Judge Sporkin's liking included a no-admit, no-deny clause, so that alleged wrongdoers could not voice publicly their dismissal of charges or attempt to tout their innocence after settling with the commission, a change that obviously irked those public companies. In addition to conceiving of the now-famous no-admit, no-deny settlements, Judge Sporkin was really the first aggressive enforcement director. Among other things, he started pushing to recover the so-called ill-gotten gains that companies, executives, and financial services professionals allegedly reaped at the expense of investors. Judge Sporkin also despised political or lobbying influence and was a champion of anti-corruption legislation, including the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or FCPA, which was enacted while he served as enforcement director. It took many years for the FCPA to become widely enforced, but it is now a staple of the SEC enforcement program. Judge Sporkin's enforcement division marked an uptick in enforcement activity and a change, a cultural change perhaps, in the way the division conducted its business. They more actively investigated potential securities laws violations and sought to sanction individuals and companies that broke the law. 
But as we mentioned, aggressive SEC enforcement didn't really take root until the post-Enron era. Indeed, Judge Sporkin's departure from the SEC roughly coincided with the beginning of the Reagan administration, which was in many ways marked by deregulatory efforts. Through the 80s and mid-90s, there were, of course, some high-profile SEC enforcement actions, but activity was relatively low or, or lower. But the seeds of change were planted in 1994 with the use of the first Deferred Prosecution Agreement, or DPA. For those who are unfamiliar with DPAs, essentially, a defendant will agree to settle a matter, pay a monetary penalty, and take corrective action in exchange for a promise from the regulator that it will not sue the defendant for now. Of course, in the event of a relapse, all bets are off. This shift, seemingly minor at the time, has proven to be a useful tool over the years, one that encourages companies to settle regulatory enforcement actions, provides a structure to compensate harmed investors, corrects deficiencies at a company or firm, and has the effect, frankly, of boosting enforcement numbers. DPAs and their cousins, non-prosecution agreements, or NPAs, are a real lightning rod in the enforcement space, Kurt. The proponents for DPAs and NPAs argue that these agreements save time, money, and significant headaches between regulators and companies as they work in tandem to identify potential misconduct, correct the environment in which that misconduct may have occurred, and to move on from those issues when they can set up some of those programs. On the other side, their critics argue that because the companies are letting regulators under the tent uh, and guiding them through what may be alleged misconduct or securities violations, uh, they may not be disclosing to the full extent of, of what might be expected in a full investigation and trial for that misconduct. And one of the more pointed uh, critiques of DPAs and NPAs is that no individuals end up going to jail for you know, what might be seen as actual violations of securities law and, and breaking the law. So really interesting nuance there to some of the DPAs and NPAs as they've been developed over time. Apart from some of the nuanced legal and technical issues facing the Division of Enforcement, one drumbeat that we've touched on today has continued throughout the past 30 years, a continuing growth of the mission and focus of the SEC's enforcement division. For example, when Regulation FD was passed in the early 2000s, requiring companies to fairly disclose significant news to the markets all at once and not to play favorites, regulators could not imagine later down the road that they'd be following executive Twitter accounts to ensure that disclosures were being made appropriately. You know, we can all follow those stories in the news of certain tech CEOs who might be tweeting about stock prices or, or production developments that fall under the, the purview of Reg FD just two decades later. But technology has not always been an obstacle for the commission as well. In 2013, the SEC's Market Information Data Analytics System, or MIDAS, went live to provide regulators more than a billion records a day from trading feeds at the exchanges. The SEC's work to combat financial fraud, abuse, and misconduct in the markets is an arms race between the budget-strapped staff at the commission and the deep-pocketed executives and companies in the market looking to meet and exceed analyst expectations, sometimes by any means necessary. The recent history of the SEC, or the past 20 years or so, and the foreseeable future are going to continue to be marked by change and, and marked by the SEC Enforcement Division's ability to change with the markets. And it seems like the pace of change is accelerating all the time. You know, the markets have really exploded over the past couple of decades, both in terms of the number of issues or, or market capitalization. It has gone far beyond anything that regulators could have imagined 
you know, certainly when Chairman Kennedy took the helm way back in 1934. Um, but even, you know, when Judge Sporkin was heading the Division of Enforcement in the 70s and early 80s, it's a vastly different landscape now. And the SEC Enforcement Division has has had to adjust and has had to occasionally ask for help. You know, we've seen them change their investigative techniques to use some things that we would call blue collar techniques like wiretaps. We've seen the enforcement division lean more on DIRA or create technological innovations that allow them to analyze big data. You know, you talked about Midas. We've talked about trading analytics tools or magic in the past, but there are lots of things that the SEC is trying to do to keep pace with the markets so that they can track in real time potential frauds or where there may be securities laws violations. The SEC Division of Enforcement has had to create dedicated teams to focus on particular issues, emerging issues that, that weren't even a thing you know, 10 years ago, right? Where they now have dedicated cybersecurity teams. They have teams focusing on initial coin offerings and cryptocurrencies, you know, in addition to teams that are dedicated to looking at more traditional types of violations like FCPA violations or insider trading. They're now having to do that in a more thoughtful, a more sophisticated way that requires additional resources. And against that backdrop, we see a you know somewhat shifting, never really radically changing, but a shifting regulatory landscape. You know, there have been calls from um, various chair people over the last 15 years or so to increase the monetary sanctions available to the SEC, both in administrative proceedings and in federal district court. There is currently this sort of ongoing question or battle about what is the applicable statute of limitations. Uh, you know, there are bills pending. Ending on the Hill right now that would stretch the statute of limitations from what right now really feels like a five-year statute to as long as 14 years. So I do think that you know we had 60 or so years where the SEC's division of enforcement was was relatively quiet. And certainly by today's standards, mm-hmm. you know, this current version of the enforcement division is really marked by its ability to adapt with the market, to adjust to a new regulatory landscape, and to bring in-house new tools that are going to allow them to fulfill their mandate. I think one of the things that the SEC enforcement division is unfairly characterized as is is sometimes missing the mark. Um, You know, it's easy to look back and point to, you know, the dot-com bubble, mortgage-backed securities issues in 2008, or or things as discreet as the the Madoff Ponzi scheme, which the SEC had a role in investigating at the time and didn't bring to light uh, any of the issues. But, you know, to the the Division of Enforcement's credit, there are hundreds, as, as you've said, 800 actions a year recently that they are enforcing, you know, the rules and laws of the securities market. I don't want to be unfair in pointing out some of the, the issues that the SEC has missed over the years, because as you've said, Kurt, they've definitely ramped up in the past 10 or 15 years. A lot of what the the original mission that, that Commissioner Kennedy and, and the 33 and 34 Act laid out for the commission and looking forward to that in the years to come. Completely agree with with all of that, Chris. You know, all I can say, my practitioner's perspective is that there's still a lot to come. It's going to be a fun space to watch. It's a really fun space to practice. And, you know, I look forward to seeing what the future holds. You know, I agree with you on that one. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Jim Barrett of the SEC Historical Society. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for future discussion on episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. 
And I'm at enforce underscore update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.